Hey everyone, welcome back to the AI Alignment Podcast Series. I'm Lucas Perry, and today we'll be speaking with El Mahdi El Mamdi on the Byzantine problem, Byzantine tolerance, and poisoning in distributed learning and computer networks. If you find this podcast interesting or useful, please give it a like and follow us on your preferred listening platform. El Mahdi El Mamdi pioneered Byzantine resilient machine learning. Devising a series of provably safe algorithms, he recently presented at NeurIPS and ICML. Interested in theoretical biology, his work also includes the analysis of error propagation in networks applied to both neural and biomolecular networks. And with that, El Mahdi is going to start us off with a thought experiment. Imagine you are part of a group of three generals, say from the Byzantine army, surrounding a city you want to invade. But you also want to retreat if retreat is the safest choice for your army. You don't want to attack when you will lose. So those three generals that you're part of are in three sides of the city. They send some intelligence inside the walls of the city. And then depending on this intelligence information, they think they will have a good chance of winning and they want to, would like to attack. Or they think they will be defeated by the city, so it's better for them to retreat. Your final decision would be a majority vote. So you communicate through some horsemen that, let's say, are reliable for the sake of this discussion. But there might be one of you who might have been corrupt by the city. The situation uh, would be problematic if, say, there are General A, General B, and General C. And General A decided to attack. General B decided to retreat based on their intelligence for some legitimate reason. A and B are not corrupt. And say, say that C is corrupt. Of course, A and B are... They can't know, they can't figure out who was corrupt. Say C is corrupt, what this general would do, they, they, so A wanted to attack, they would tell them, I also want to attack, I would attack. And then they would tell General B, I also want to retreat, so I would retreat. A receives two attack votes and one retreat vote. General B receives two retreat votes and only one attack vote. If they trust everyone and don't do any double-checking, this would be a disaster. A would attack alone, B would retreat, and C, of course, doesn't care because he was corrupted by the cities. You can tell me that they can circumvent that by double-checking. So, for example, A and B can communicate on what C told them. So let's say that every general communicates with every general on what he decides and on also what the remaining part of the group told them. A will report to B, General C told me to attack, and then B would tell C, General C told me to retreat. But then A and B wouldn't have any way of concluding whether the inconsistency is coming from the fact that C is corrupt or that the general reporting on what C told them is corrupt. So I am General A. I have all the reasons, all the valid reasons to think with same likelihood that C is maybe lying to me, or also B might also be lying to me. So I can't know if you are misreporting what C told you. It's enough for the city to corrupt one general if there are three. It's impossible to come up with an agreement in this situation. And you can easily see that this will generalize to having more than three generals, like let's say a hundred, as soon as the non-corrupt one are less than two-thirds. Because what we saw with three generals would happen with the fractions that are not corrupt say that you have strictly more than 33 generals part of 100 who are corrupt. So what they can do is they can switch the majority votes on each side. And But worse than that, say that like, you have 34 corrupt generals and the remaining 66 non-corrupt generals. 
say that like those 66 non-corrupt generals were 33 on the attack side, 33 on the retreat side. The problem is that when you are in some side, say that you are in the retreat side, you have in front of you a group of 34 plus 33, in which there is a majority of malicious ones. And this majority can collude. It's part of the Byzantine hypothesis. The malicious ones can collude. And they will report a majority of inconsistent messages on the minority, on the 33 ones. You can't probably realize that the, the inconsistency is coming from the group of 34 because they are a majority. When we're thinking about, like, say, uh, 100 persons or 100 generals, uh, mm-hmm. why is it that they're going to be partitioned automatically into these three groups? What if there's more, more than three groups? We, here we are, we are doing like a binary, the easiest form of Byzantine agreement. We want to agree on attack versus retreat. When it becomes multidimensional, it gets even messier. There are more impossibility results than possibility results. So just like with the binary decision, there is an impossibility theorem on having agreements. If you have unsigned messages through horsemen, whenever the corrupt group exceeds 33%, you probably cannot come up with an agreement. There are many variants to this problem, of course, depending on what hypothesis you can assume. Here, without even mentioning it, we were assuming bounded delays, like the horsemen would always arrive eventually. If the horseman could die on the way and you don't have any way to check whether they arrived or not, or like you can be waiting forever because you don't have any proof that the horseman died on the way. So you don't have any mechanism to tell you, stop waiting for the horseman, stop waiting for the message from General B because the horseman died. So you can be waiting forever, and there are theorems that shows that when you have unbounded delays, and by the way, like in distributed computing, whenever you have unbounded delays, we speak about asynchrony. So if you have asynchronous communication, Mm -hmm. there is a very famous theorem that tells you that consensus is impossible, not even in the malicious case, but just like in the... In in, in, In in a mundane, normal case? Yes. It's called the Fisher-Lynch-Patterson theorem. Right. So just to sort of dive down into the the crux of the problem, the issue here fundamentally is that when groups, groups of computers or groups of generals or whatever are trying to check who is lying amongst discrepancies and similarities of lists and like everyone who's claiming what is when there appears to be a a simple majority within that level of corrupted submissions, then yeah, you're screwed. Yes. Uh, And so it's impossible to achieve agreement There are always like fractions of malicious agents above which it's provably impossible to agree. Mm -hmm. Depending on the situation, it would be a third or sometimes a half or a quarter, depending on your specifications. So the way, if you start tweaking the assumptions Mm. behind the thought experiment, then it changes what number of corrupted machines or agents it requires in order to flip the majority and to poison the communication. For example, so you you mentioned something very relevant to today's discussion, which is what if we were not agreeing on two decisions, retreat, attack? What what if we were agreeing on some multidimensional decision? Attack, retreat on one dimension, and then... Maybe hold, like keep the siege going. Yeah, just like add possibilities or dimensions and multidimensional agreements. There are even more hopeless results right. in, in that direction. There are more like impossibility theorems and like right. issues where these distributed systems are vulnerable to small amounts of systems being corrupt and screwing over the entire distributed network. 
Yes. So maybe now we can like slightly move to machine learning. I'm happy to move into machine learning now. So we, we've talked about this and I think our audience can probably tell how this is, has to do with computers. Yeah, just dive into what this has to do with machine learning and AI and, and, and current systems today and why it even matters for AI alignment. Okay, yeah, as, as a brief transition, solving the agreement problem besides this very nice historic thought experiments is behind uh, consistencies of critical safety critical systems like banking systems. Imagine we have a shared account. Maybe you, like, you removed 10% of the amount and then she or he added some $10 to the account. You removed the $10 in New York and she or he put the $10 in Los Angeles the banking system has to agree on the ordering because minus 10 plus 10% is not the same result as plus 10% then minus 10. The final balance of the account would not be the same. And right. the banking systems routinely are solving decisions that fall into agreement. If you work on like some document sharing platform like Dropbox or Google Docs mm -hmm. or whatever, and we collaboratively are writing a document, me and you, the document sharing platform has to, on real time, solve agreements about the ordering of operations so that me and you always keep seeing the same thing. This has to happen while some of the machines that are interconnecting us are failing. Whether just like failing because there was an electric crash, so some data centers lost some machines, or there was like a restart, a bug, or, or a takeaway. And what we want in distributed computing is that we would like communication schemes between machines that guarantee this consistency that comes from agreement as long as some fraction of machines are reliable. What this has to do with artificial intelligence and machine learning reliability is that with some colleagues, we are trying to encompass one of the major issues in machine learning reliability inside the Byzantine fault tolerance umbrella. For example, you take, for instance, uh, poisoning attacks. Unpack what poisoning attacks are. So, for example, imagine you are training a model on what are good videos to recommend given some keyword search. So, if you search for medical advice for young parents on vaccine, this is a label. And let's assume for the sake of simplicity that a video that tells you not to take your kid for vaccines is not what we mean by medical advice for young parents on vaccine. Uh, because that's what medical experts agree on. So we want our system to learn that anti-vaxxers, like anti-vaccine propaganda, is not what people are searching for when they type those keywords. So I suppose a word where we care about accuracy. Okay. So imagine you want to train a machine learning model that gives you accurate uh, right. results of right. your search. Let's also, for the sake of simplicity, assume that a majority of people on the internet are honest. Let's assume that more than 50% of people are not actively trying to poison the internet. So yeah, that, that, like, this, this is very optimistic. But <laughs> let's assume that. What we can show, and what me and my colleagues started this line of research with, is that you can easily prove that one single malicious agent can provably poison a distributed machine learning scheme. So imagine you are this video sharing platform and uh, you, whenever people behave on your platform, this generates what we call gradients. So it updates your model. It only takes a few hyperactive accounts that could generate behavior that is powerful enough to pull what we call like the average gradient because what distributed machine learning is using, at least up to today, if you read the source code of most distributed machine learning frameworks, distributed machine learning is always averaging gradients. 
So imagine you are you, Lucas Puri, just Googled a video on the Parkland shooting scene. Yeah. And then the video sharing platform shows you a video telling you that David Hogg and Emma Gonzalez and those kids behind the March for Our Life movement are crisis actors. So the video labels three kids as crisis actors. It obviously has a wrong label. So it is what I would call a poisoned data point. If you are a non-malicious agent on the video sharing platform, you will dislike the video. You will not approve it. You would like literally flag it. This should generate a gradient that pushes the model into that direction. So the gradient will update the model into a direction where it stops thinking that this video is relevant for someone searching Parkland shooting survivors. Mm -hmm. What can happen if your machine learning framework is just averaging gradients is that a bunch of hyperactive people on some topic could poison the average and pull it towards the direction that where the models is enforcing this thinking that, yeah, the, those kids are... Right, right, right. And, so, and so, so this is the case because the hyperactive accounts are seen to be given more weight than like accounts which are less active in the same space. But this this extra weighting that these accounts will get from their hyperactivity in one certain category or space over another, how is the weighting done? Is it just time spent per category or does it have to do with submissions that agree with the majority? We don't even need to go into the details because we don't know. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm talking in a general setting okay. where you have like a video sharing platform aggregating gradients okay. from behavior. Now, maybe let's raise the abstraction level. You are doing gradient descent. So you have a loss function that you want to minimize. So you have an error function. The error function is the mismatch between what you predict and what the user tells you. So the user tells you this is a wrong prediction. And then you, you move to the direction where you, the users stop telling you this is the wrong direction. So you are doing gradient descent, minimizing a loss function. User behaves, and with their behavior, you generate gradients. What you do now in the state-of-the-art way of distributed machine learning is that you average all those gradients. And averaging is well-known not to be resilient. Mm-hmm. Like if you have a room of poor academics earning a few thousand dollars and then a billionaire jumps, on, jumps in in the room, if your algorithm reasons with averaging, it will think that this is a room of millionaires because the average salary would right. be a couple hundred millions. Mm-hmm. But then median is very obvious to do when it comes to salaries and numbers, scalars. Because you can rank numbers and then decide, okay, this is the ordering, this is the number that falls in the middle, this is the upper half, this is the lower half, Uh and this is the median. When it becomes high dimensional, the median is a bit tricky. So uh, it it has some computational issues. And then even if you compute what we call the geometric median, an attacker can still know how to leverage the fact that you're only approximating it because there's no closed formula, like there's no closed form to compute the median in high dimension. But worse than that, what we showed in one of our follow-up works, the fact that machine learning is done in very, very, very high dimensions, you would have a curse of dimensionality issue that makes it possible for attackers to sneak in without being spotted as a way of the median. So I can still look like the median vector. I take benefits from the fact that those vectors, those gradients are extremely high dimensional. I would look for all the disagreements. Let's say you have a group of a couple hundred gradients and I'm the only one malicious one. I would look at the group of correct vectors all updating you somehow in the same direction within some variance. On average, they're like what we call unbiased estimators of the gradient. So when you take out the randomness, the expected value they will give you is the real gradient of the loss function. So what I will do as a malicious worker is I will look at the way they are disagreeing slightly on each direction. 
I will sum that. So I, I will see that they, they disagree by this much on direction one. They disagree by this much on direction two. They disagree by this much. Epsilon one, epsilon two, epsilon three. I would look for all the dis small disagreements they have on all the components. Across all dimensions in, in across, a high dimensional yeah. space. And then add that up. It would be my budget, my leeway, mm -hmm. my margin to attack you on another direction. I see. So what we proved is that you have to mix ideas from geometric medium with ideas from the traditional component-wise medium. And th those are completely different things. The geometric medium is, is a way to find a medium by just like minimizing the sum of distances between what you look for and all the vectors that were proposed. And then the component-wise medium will do a traditional job of ranking the coordinates. So it looks at each coordinate and then rank all the propositions and then look for the proposition that lies in the middle. And what we proved in a follow-up work is that, yeah, the geometric median idea is elegant, it can make you converge, but it can make you converge to something arbitrarily bad decided by the attacker. Mm -hmm. So you will converge. When you train complex models like neural nets, the landscape you optimize inside is not convex. It's not like a bowl or a cup where if you just follow the, the descending slope, you would end up in the lowest point. Right. It's like a multitude of bowls with different heights. Right. So there's tons of different local minima exactly. across the space. Exactly. With... So in the first paper, what we showed is that ideas that look like the geometric median are enough to just converge. You, you converge. You probably converge, but... In the follow-up, what we realized, like something we were already aware of, but not enough in my opinion, is that there is the square root D, this curse of dimensionality that will arise when you compute high-dimensional distances that the attacker can leverage. So in what we call the hidden vulnerability of distributed learning, we, you can have correct vectors agreeing on one component. Imagine in your head some three-axis system. Uh -huh. Let's say that they are completely in agreement on axis three. But then in axis one, two, so in the plane formed by the axis one and axis two, mm -hmm. they have a small disagreement. What I will do as the malicious agent is that I will leverage this small disagreement and inject it in axis three. And this will make you go to a bit slightly modified direction. And instead of going to this very deep, very good minima, you will go into a local trap that is just close ahead. And that comes from the fact that loss functions of interesting models are clearly like far from being convex. The models are highly dimensional and the loss function is highly non-convex and this creates a lot of leeway. It creates a lot of local minima spread throughout the space for, exactly. to, for you to attack the person sort of yeah. into. So convergence is not enough. So we, we started this research direction by formulating the following question. What does it take? to guarantee conversions. And any scheme that aggregates gradients and guarantee conversions is called Byzantine resilient. But then you can realize that in very high dimensions and highly non-convex loss functions, is conversions enough? Would you just want to converge? There are, of course, people arguing that deep learning models, like there's this famous paper by Anna Shoromanska, Jan Lucan and uh, Gerard Benarros, about the landscape of neural nets that basically say that, yeah, very deep local minimum of neural nets are somehow as good. From an overly simplified point of view, it's an optimistic paper that tells you that you shouldn't worry too much when you optimize neural nets about the fact that gradient descent would not necessarily go to a global... like To a global minimum. Yeah, just like stop caring about that. Because the, the local minima are good enough yes. for, for some reason. Yeah, I think that's a not too uh, unfair way to summarize the paper for the sake of this talk, mm -hmm. for, for the sake of this discussion. Mm -hmm. What we empirically illustrate here and theoretically uh, support is that that's not necessarily true because we showed that with very low dimensional, like not, not extremely complex models, 
trained on CIFAR-10 and MNIST, which are toy problems, very easy toy problems, low-dimensional models, etc., it's already enough to have those amounts of parameters, let's say 100,000 parameters or less, so that an attacker would always find a direction to take you each time away, 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 and then eventually find an arbitrarily bad local minimum, and then you just converge to that. So convergence is not enough. Not only you have to seek an aggregation rule that guarantees conversions, but you have to seek some aggregation rules that guarantee that you would not converge to something arbitrarily bad. You would keep conversion to the same high quality local minimum, whatever that means. Mm-hmm. The hidden vulnerability yeah. is this yeah, high dimensional yeah, yeah, yeah. idea. Is that the fact that because the loss function is highly non-convex, because there's yes. the high dimensionality, as an attacker, I would always find some direction. So uh-huh. the attack goes this way. Here, the threat model is is that an attacker can spy on your gradients Mm -hmm. generated by the correct workers, but cannot talk on their behalf. So I cannot corrupt the messages since you asked about like a reliability of horsemen or not. So horsemen are reliable. I can't talk on your behalf, but I can spy on you. I can Mm -hmm. see what are you sending to the others and anticipate. So I would, as an attacker, wait for correct workers to generate their gradients. I will gather those vectors. And then I would just do a linear regression on those vectors to find the best direction to leverage the disagreement on the D minus one remaining directions. Mm -hmm. So because there would be this natural disagreement, this variance in many directions, I would just like do some linear regression and find what is the best direction to keep and use the budgets. I gathered those epsilons I mentioned earlier, like this D time epsilon on all the directions to inject it in the direction that will maximize my chances of taking you away from local means. So, so you, you will converge as proven in the early papers, but not necessarily to something good. But what we showed here is that if you combine ideas from multidimensional geometric medians with ideas from single dimensional component-wise median, you improve your robustness. Of course, it comes with a price. You require three quarters of the workers to be reliable. There's another direction where we expanded this problem, which is asynchrony. And asynchrony arises when, as I said, in the Byzantine general's setting, you don't have a bounded delay. Mm-hmm. You, like In the bounded delay setting, you know that horses arrive at most after one hour. But I have no idea if the computer on the other side of the planet is ever going to send me that next update. So imagine you are doing machine learning on smartphones. Yeah. You're leveraging a set of smartphones all around the globe, like in different bandwidths and Mm -hmm. different communication issues, etc. And you don't want each time to be bottlenecked by the slowest one. So you want to be asynchronous. You don't want to wait. You just like whenever some update is coming, take it into account. Imagine some very advanced AI scenario where like you send a lot of learners all across the universe and then like they communicate with the speed of light, but some of them are five light minutes away, but some others are two hours and a half. And you want to learn from all of them, but not necessarily handicap the closest one Mm -hmm. because there are some other learners far away. You want to run updates in the context of asynchrony. So you want to update whenever a gradient is is popping up. Before we move on to illustrate the problem again here is that the order matters. Right, like in the banking example, because the 10% plus 10 is different from... Yeah, here the order matters for different reasons. Yeah. You update me, so you are updating me on the model you got three hours ago. Uh But in the meanwhile, three different agents updated me on the models while getting it three minutes ago. Like all, all the agents are communicating through some abstraction they call the server, maybe. like uh-huh. This server receives updates from fast workers. It receives gradients. Yeah, gradients. I, I also call them updates. Okay. Because some workers are close to me and like very fast, I've done maybe a thousand updates mm-hmm. while you were still working and sending me the message. 
So in your update arrive, I can tell whether it is very stale, very late, or malicious. So what we do in here is that, and I think it's very important now to connect a bit back with classic distributed computing, is that Byzantine resilience in machine learning is easier than Byzantine resilience in classical distributed computing for one reason, but it is extremely harder for another reason. The first reason is that we know what we want to agree on. We want to agree on a gradient. We have a toolbox of calculus that tells us how this looks like. We know that it's the slope of some loss function that is most of today's models, relatively smooth, differentiable, maybe Lipschitz, bounded, whatever, curvature. So we know that we are agreeing on vectors that are gradients of some loss function. And we know that there is a majority of workers that will produce vectors that will tell us what does a legit vector look like. You can find some median behavior and then come up with filtering criteria that will get away with the bad gradients. That's the good news. That's why it's easier to do Byzantine resilient machine learning than to do Byzantine resilient agreement. Byzantine agreement, because agreement is a way harder problem. The reason why Byzantine resilience is harder in machine learning than in the typical settings you have in distributed computing is that we are dealing with extremely high-dimensional data, extremely high-dimensional decisions. So a decision here is to update the model. It is triggered by a gradient. So whenever I accept a gradient, I make a decision. I make a decision to change the model, to take it away from this state to this new state by this much. But this is a multidimensional update. And Byzantine agreement or like Byzantine approximate agreement in high dimension has been provably hopeless by Hammurabi Mendes and mm. uh, Maurice Herley in an excellent uh, paper in 2013, where they show that you can't do a Byzantine agreement in D dimension with N agents in less than N to the power D computations mm -hmm. per agent locally. Mm -hmm. Of course, in their paper, they were meaning like Byzantine agreement on positions. So they were like framing it with a motivation saying this is n to the power d, but the typical cases we care about in distributed computing are like robots agreeing on a position on a plane mm -hmm. or on a position in a three-dimensional space. So d is two or three. So n to the power two or n to the power three is not fine. It's fine. But in machine learning, d is not two and three is a billion or a couple of millions. Mm -hmm. So n to the power of a million is just like, just forget. And not only that, but also they require, remember when I tell you that like Byzantine resilience computing would always have some upper bound on the number of malicious agents. Mm -hmm. So the number of total agents should exceed D times the number of malicious agents. What is D again? Sorry? The dimension. The dimension, okay. So if, if you have to agree on D dimension, like on a billion dimensional decision, mm -hmm. you need at least a billion times the number of malicious agents. So if you have, say, a hundred malicious agents, mm -hmm. you need at least a hundred billion total number of agents to be resistant. And no one is doing distributed machine learning and this on is because the, And this is because the dimensionality is yes. really screwing with the... Yeah, Byzantine approximate agreement has been provably hopeless. Uh -huh. That's the bad, like, that's why, like, the dimensionality of machine learning makes it really important to go away, to completely go away from traditional distributed computing solutions. Okay. So we, we are not doing agreement. We're not doing agreement. We're not even doing approximate agreement. We're doing something totally new no not new totally different okay called gradient descent it's not new it's like okay. old as newton and it comes with good news it's it comes with the fact that there are some properties like some regularity of the loss function some properties we can exploit and so in the asynchronous setting it becomes even more critical to leverage those differentiability properties 
So because we know that we are optimizing a loss function that has some regularities, we can have some good news. And the good news has to do with curvature. What we do here in a synchronous setting is not, not only we ask workers for their gradients, we ask them for their empirical estimate of the curvature. So we, Sorry, they're estimating the curvature of the loss function that they're adding the gradient to? They add the gradient to the parameter, not to the loss function. Okay. So we have a loss function. Uh -huh. Parameter is the abscess. Okay. You add the gradient to the abscess uh -huh. to update the model, and then you end up in a different place of the loss function. Okay. So you can you have to imagine the loss function as like a surface, uh -huh. and then the parameter space as the plane, the horizontal plane below the surface. And depending on where you are in the parameter space parameter, you would be on different heights of the loss function. Wait, sorry, so does the gradient depend where you are on this the bottom plane? Yeah. And well, then so then you send an estimate for what you think the slope of the, the intersection will yeah, be? Yeah, but for asynchrony, not only that, I will ask you to send me the slope and your observed empirical growth of the slope. The okay. second derivative? Yeah. Okay. But the second derivative, again, in high dimension is very hard to compute. It's, okay. You have to compute the Hessian matrix. The Hessian, okay. And some, that's something like completely ugly to compute in high dimensional situations because it takes T-square computation. Okay. As an alternative, we would like you to send us some linear computation in D, not a square computation in D. So we'd ask you to compute your actual gradient, your previous gradient, the difference between them, and normalize it by the difference between models. So tell us your current gradients by how much it changed from the last gradient and divide that by how much you changed the parameter. So you would tell us, okay, this is my current slope and okay, this is the gradient. And you will also tell us, by the way, my slope change relative to my parameter change is this much. And this would be some empirical estimation of the curvature. So if you are in a very curved area... Then the estimation isn't going to be accurate because the linearity is going to cut through some of the curvature. Yeah, but if you are in a very curved area of the loss function, mm -hmm. your slope would change a lot. Okay, exponentially changing the slope. Yeah, because you do like a very tiny change yeah. in the parameter and we'll takes the... a lot of the slope. Yeah. When you are in a non-curved area of the loss function, mm -hmm. it's less harmful for us that you are stale because okay. you will just technically have the same updates. If you are in a very curved area of the loss function, your updates being stale is now a big problem. So we want to discard your updates proportionally to your curvature. So this is the main idea of this scheme in asynchrony, where we would ask workers about their gradient and their empirical growth rates. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, I don't want to trust you on what you declare. Right. Because you can plan to screw me with some gradients and then declare a legitimate value of the curvature. I will take those empirical, which we call in the paper empirical Lipschitzness. So we ask you for this empirical growth rate, but it's a scalar, remember? This is very important. It's a single dimensional number. And so we ask you about this growth rate. And we ask all of you about growth rates. Again, assuming a majority is correct. So the majority of growth rates will help us set the median growth rate in a robust manner. Because as long as a simple majority is not lying, the median growth rates would always be bounded between two legitimate values of the growth rate. Right, because you're having, or you're having multiple workers inform you of the yes. same part of yes. your loss function. E even though they do it in an asynchronous manner. Yeah, then you take the median of all of them. Yes, and then like we reason by quantiles of the growth rates. You reason by quantiles? Quantiles. What, like, is there, what are quantiles? The first third, the second third, the third third, like the first 30%, the second 30%, the third 30%. Third we would discard the first 30%, mm -hmm. discard the last 30%. Anything in the second 30% is safe. Of course, this has some level of pessimism, 
which is good for safety, but not very, very good for like being fast because maybe people are not lying. So maybe the first 30% and the last 30% are also values we could consider. Right. But for safety reasons, we want to be sure. You want to try to get rid of the outliers. Possible, the yeah. Possible outliers. Yeah. So we get rid of the first 30% the last 30%. So this ends up being a more conservative estimate, right, yes. of the loss function. It's completely right. We explained that in the paper. Right? So there's a trade-off that you can yeah. decide by choosing what percentiles to, Sa- yeah. to throw away. S- safety never comes for free. So here, yeah. depending on how good your estimate about the number of potential Byzantine actors is, your level of pessimism will mm-hmm. translate into s- slowdown. Right, and so you can update the amount that you're cutting off based off of the the amount of expected corrupted signals you think you're getting. So now imagine a situation where you know the number of workers is known. Like you know that you are leveraging 100,000 smartphones doing gradient descent for you. Let's call that N. You know that F of them might be malicious. We argue that if F is exceeding the third of N, you can't do anything. So we're in a situation where is F is less than a third, so less than 33,000 workers are malicious. Then the slowdown would be F over N, so a third. What if you are in a situation where you know that your malicious agents are way less than a third? For example, you know that you have at most 20 rogue accounts in your video sharing platform. Okay. And your video sharing platform has 2 billion accounts. So you have 2 billion accounts. What we show is that the slowdown would be N minus F divided by N. N is the 2 billion accounts, F is the 20, and N is again 2 billion. So it would be 2 billion minus 20, so 1,900,000,000, like something like 0.9999999. So you would go almost as fast as the non-Byzantine resilient scheme. So our Byzantine resilient scheme has a slowdown that is very reasonable in situations where F, the number of malicious agents, is way less than N, the total number of agents which is typical in moderns. Today, like if you ask social media platforms, they have a lot of toolkits to prevent people from creating a billion fake accounts. Yeah. Like you can't in 20 hours create an army of several million accounts. None of the mainstream social media platforms today are susceptible, are, are susceptible to, to, massive this, to, yeah, to this massive account creation. Uh-huh. So you know that the number of corrupted accounts are negligible to the number of total accounts. So that's the good news. The good news is that you know that F is negligible to N. Mm-hmm. But then the slowdown of our Byzantine resilient methods is also close to 1. Okay. But th- it has the advantage compared to the state-of-the-art way today to train distributed settings of not taking the average gradient. And we argued in the very beginning that those 20 accounts that you could create, it doesn't take a bot army or whatever. You don't need to hack into the machines of the social network. You can have a dozen humans sitting somewhere in a house, manually creating 20 accounts, training the accounts over time, doing behavior that makes them legitimate for some topic. And then because your distributed machine learning scheme will average the gradients generated by people behavior, end up making you recommend anti-vaccine or controversies, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. So if I have 20 bad gradients and like 10,000 good gradients for a video, why is it that with averaging the 20 bad gradients are messing up the... The amplitude. It's like the billionaire in the room of poor academics. Okay. Because the amplitude of each of their accounts is greater than the average of the other accounts? Yes. The average of other accounts that are going to engage with this thing don't have as large of an amplitude because they haven't 
don't engage with this topic as yeah, much. Yeah, because they're not like super credible on gun control, for example. Yeah, but aren't there a ton of other accounts with large amplitudes that are going to be looking at the same video let's, and like let's, correcting let's, yeah, over Let's the... define, yeah, let's define large amplitudes. Okay. If you come to the video and just like it, mm-hmm. that's a small update. What about you like it, post a very engaging comment? So you write a comment that gets a lot of engagement, gets yeah. a lot of likes, and that's and, how you and increase replies. your amplitude. Okay. And, and because you were already like doing some good job in becoming the reference on that video sharing platform, when it comes to like discussing gun control, the amplitude of your comments is by definition high, and the fact that your comment was like very early on posted, and then not only you commented the video, but you also produced a follow up video. I see. So the gradient is really determined by a multitude of things that the video sharing platform is measuring for. And the metrics are like how quickly you commented, how many people commented and replied to you. Does it also include language that you use? Probably. Okay. It depends on the social media platform and it depends on the video sharing platform. And what it's clear is that like there are many schemes that those 20 accounts created by this dozen people in a house can like try to find good ways to maximize the amplitude of their generated gradients. But this is a way easier problem than the typical problems we have in technical AI safety. This is not value alignment or like value loading or like mm-hmm. the coherent extrapolated evolution. This is like a very easy tractable problem mm-hmm. on which now we have good news, provable results. What's interesting is the follow-up questions that we're trying to investigate with my colleagues. The first of which is not necessarily have a majority of people on the internet promoting vaccines. People that are against things yeah. are often louder than yeah. people that are not. Exactly. And sometimes maybe not numerous. Yes. Because they generate content. Right. And the people who think vaccines are safe, not creating content. Yeah. In some topics, it might be safe to say that we have a majority of reasonable, decent people on the mm-hmm. internet. But there are some topics in which now even like polls, like the vaccine situation, there's a surge now of anti-vaccine resentment in Western Europe and the US. Ironically, this is happening in the developed country now because like people are so young, they don't remember the non-vaccinated past. Like my aunt, I, I come from Morocco, my aunt uh, is handicapped by polio. So I, I grew up seeing what a non-vaccinated person looks like. So young people in the more developed countries never had a living example of non-vaccinated past. But they do have examples of people that end up with autism and it seems correlated with vaccines. Yeah, like the anti-vaccine content might just end up being so clickbait and so yeah. like, provocative that it gets popular. So this is a topic where the majority hypothesis, which is crucial to Byzantine resilience, does not hold. An open follow-up we're onto now is how to combine ideas from reputation, metrics, page rank, etc. with Byzantine resilience. So for example, you have the National Health Institute, the John Hopkins Medical Hospital, Harvard Medical School, and I don't know, the Massachusetts General Hospital having official accounts on some video sharing platform. And then you can spot what they say on some topic because now we're very good at doing semantic analysis of content and know that, okay, on the tag vaccines, I know that there's this bunch of experts And then what you want to make emerge on your platform is some sort of like epistocracy. The power is given to the knowledgeable. Mm -hmm. Like we have in some fields, like in medical regulation, the FDA doesn't do a majority vote. We don't have a popular majority vote across the country to tell the FDA whether it should approve this new drug or not. The FDA does some sort of epistocracy where like the knowledgeable experts on the topic would vote. So how about mixing ideas from social choice, so in topics in which there are experts yeah, who yeah, yeah. can inform... There's also a general follow-up of just 
straight out trying to connect Byzantine resilient learning with social choice. But then there's like another set of follow-ups that motivates me even more. We were mentioning workers, workers, people generating like accounts on social media, accounts generating gradients. But we're all like implicitly assuming that the server, the abstraction that's gathering those gradients is reliable. What about the aggregating platform itself being deployed on rogue machines? So imagine you're whatever platform doing learning. By the way, whatever, like all what we have said from the beginning to now applies as long as you do gradient-based learning. So it can be recommender systems. It can be training some deep reinforcement learning on some super complicated task to beat, I don't know, the world champion in poker. We do not care. As long as there's like some gradient generation from observing some state, some environmental state and some reward or some label, it can be supervised, reinforced. As long as gradient-based, all what we say apply. Imagine now you have this platform leveraging distributed gradient creators, but then the platform itself, for security reasons, is deployed on several machines for fault tolerance. But then those machines themselves can fail. How to make the servers agree on the model? So despite the fact that a fraction of the workers are not reliable and now a fraction of the servers themselves. This is the most important follow-up I'm, I'm into now. And I think we'll, there would be something on archive, maybe February or March on that. And then a third follow-up is practical instances of that. So uh, I've been describing speculative thought experiments Mm -hmm. on power poisoning uh, Mm -hmm. recommender systems. There's actually a brilliant master student working with me who's exactly doing that, like on typical recommender systems data sets, where you could see that it's very easy. It really takes you a bunch of active agents to poison 100,000 ones or more. Probably people working on big social media platforms would have ways to assess what I've said. And so as researchers in academia, we could only speculate on what can go wrong on those platforms. So what we could do is just like we just took state-of-the-art recommender systems, data sets and models that are publicly available. And you can show that despite having a large number of reliable recommendation proposers, a small tiny fraction of proposers can make, I don't know, like a movie recommendation system recommend the most suicidal triggering Mm -hmm. film Mm -hmm. to the most depressed Mm -hmm. person watching through your platform so obviously that's something you don't want to have right just wrapping this all up how do you see this in the context of ai alignment and the future of machine learning and artificial intelligence so uh, i've been discussing this here with people in the beneficial ai uh, conference and it seems that there are two school of thoughts I'm still hesitating between the two because I switched it in the past three months from the two sides like three times. So <laughs> one that thinks that an AGI is by definition resilient to poisoning. Aligned AGI yeah. might be by definition. Uh, not, not, like, not even aligned. The second school of thought is aligned AGI is poisoning resilient. Okay, I see. Obviously aligned AGI would, would be poisoning resilient. But like, let's just talk about super intelligent AI, not necessarily aligned. So you have a super intelligence. Would you include poisoning resilience in the super intelligence definition or not? And one would say that, yeah, if you are better than human in whatever task, it means you're also better than human into spotting poison data. Right. I mean, the poison data is just messing with your epistemics. And so if you were super intelligent, your epistemics would be less subject to to interference. But then there's that second school of thought, which I switched back again, because I find that most people are in the first school of thought now. (laughs) So I believe that super intelligence doesn't necessarily include poisoning resilience because of what I call like practically time-constrained superintelligence. If you have a deadline because of computational complexity, you have to learn something within some time scale. Yeah, you want to get things done. Yeah, so you want to get it done in a finite amount of time. And because of that, you will end up leveraging to speed up your learning. 
So if a malicious agent just put up bad observations of the environment or like bad labeling of whatever is around you, mm-hmm. then, then it can make you learn something else than what you would like as an aligned outcome. I'm strongly on the second side, despite many disagreeing with me here. I don't think superintelligence includes poisoning resilience mm-hmm. because superintelligence would still be built with time constraints. Right. You're making a trade-off between safety and computational efficiency. Right. It also would obviously seem to matter the kind of world that the ASI finds itself in. Like if it knows that it's in a world with no or like very, very, very few malevolent agents that are wanting to poison it, then it can just throw all of this sort of out of the window. But the problem is, is that we live on a planet with a bunch of other primates that are trying to mess up our machine learning. So I guess just as a kind of fun example and taking it to an extreme, uh, imagine it's the year 300,000 AD and you have a super intelligence, which is sort of spread across space-time and it's sort of beginning to optimize its uh, cosmic endowment, but it gives some sort of uncertainty over space-time to whether or not there are other superintelligences there who might want to poison its interstellar communication in order to start taking over some of its cosmic endowment. Do you want to just sort of yeah. explore? <laughs> that, 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 that was like a close uh, thought experiment I proposed in earlier to Carl Truman from the FHI. It's like, imagine some superintelligence reaching a planet where there is like a smart form of life emerging from electric communication between plasma clouds. So a completely non-carbon, non-silicon-based life. So like if Jupiter made brains on it. Yeah, like Jupiter made brain on it just out of electric communication through gas clouds. Yeah, okay. And then this tender form of communication is smart enough to know that this is a sort of intelligence reaching the planet to learn about this form of life. And then it was just like, start trolling it. It'll start trolling the superintelligence. Yeah, it's showing it like they, they will like come up with an agreement ahead of time. Saying, yeah, this, this superintelligence coming from Earth to Alpha Century to uh-huh. discover how we do things here. Uh-huh. Let's just behave dumply or like let's just like misbehave. And then the superintelligence will start collecting data on this life form and then come back to Earth saying, yeah, they're just like a dumb plasma passive form of nothing interesting. I mean, you don't think that within the superintelligence's model, I mean, we're talking about it right now, so obviously superintelligence will know this when it leaves, that there will be agents who are going to try and trick it. That's the rebuttal. Yeah. Yeah. So That's the rebuttal. Again, like, again, how much time does superintelligence have to do inference and draw conclusions? You would always have some time constraints. And you don't always have enough computational power to model other agents sufficiently to know whether or not they're lying or... Yeah. You could always come up with thought experiments with like some sort of other form of intelligence, like another super intelligence is trying to... There's never, ever a perfect computer science. Yeah, never. you can say that. Security is never perfect. Yeah. Information exchange is never yeah. perfect. But you can improve it. Yeah. Wouldn't you assume that the complexity of the attacks would also scale... We just have a ton of people like working on defense, but if we had an equal amount of people working on attack, wouldn't we have an equally complex method of poisoning that would that our current methods would just be that, overcome by? That's part of the empirical follow-up I mentioned. The, okay. the one Isabella would be working on, which is like trying to do some sort of min-max game of poisoner versus Byzantine resilience learner adversarial poisoning setting or like a poisoner and then there is like a resilient learner and the poisoner tries to maximize 
And what we have so far is very depressing. It turns out that it's very easy to be a poisoner. It's way like computationally, it's way easier to be the poisoner. Yeah, I mean, be. in general, in the yeah. world, it's easier to destroy things than to create order. As I said in the beginning, this is a subtopic of technical AI safety, where I believe it's easier to have tractable, formalizable problems for which you can probably have a safe solution. solution. Uh, the very concrete, very short-term aspects of that, in, in March, we're going to announce a major update in TensorFlow, which is the, the standard frameworks today to do distributed machine learning, open source by Google. So we will announce, hopefully, if everything goes right, in SysML, in the Systems for Machine Learning Conference, like more empirically focused colleagues. So based on the algorithms I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. which were uh, presented at uh, NeurIPS and ICML for the past two years, mm-hmm. they will announce a major update where they basically changed every averaging inside TensorFlow by those three algorithms I mentioned, Krum and Boolean and soon Cardam, which constitute our portfolio of Byzantine resilient algorithms. Another consequence that comes for free with that is that distributed uh, machine learning frameworks like TensorFlow use TCP IP as a communication protocol. So TCP IP has a problem, like it's reliable, but it's very slow. You have to repeatedly like repeat some messages, etc., to guarantee the reliability. And we would like to have a faster communication protocol like UDP. We don't need to go to those details, but it has some package drop. So, so far, there was no version of TensorFlow or any distributed machine learning framework, to my knowledge, using UDP. They all used TCP IP because they needed reliable communication. But now, because we are Byzantine resilient, we can afford having fast but not completely reliable communication protocols like UDP. So one of the things that come for free with Byzantine resilience is that you can move from heavy, heavy, yeah, heavy communication protocols like TCP IP to lighter, faster, more live communication protocols like UDP. Keeping in mind you're trading off. A- exactly. Now we have this portfolio of algorithms which can serve many other applications besides just like making faster distributed machine learning, like making poisoning resilience, I don't know, recommender systems for social media, and hopefully making AGI learn in a poisoning resilience manner. Wonderful. So if people want to check out some of your work or follow you on, on social media, what, what is the best place to keep At up with you? Twitter. Uh, my handle is El Badijo. So maybe you'll just like have it written down yeah. <laughs> on the description. Yeah. Cool. Like, yeah, Twitter is the best way to get in touch. All right. Well, wonderful. Uh, thank you so much for speaking with me today. And uh, I'm excited to see what comes out of all this next. Thank you. Thank you for hosting this. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, give it a like, or share it on your preferred social media platform. We'll be back again soon with another episode in the AI Alignment series. 